Good morning. Go ahead, grab your Bibles and open them up to Luke chapter 20. Happy 4th of July. Very different than last 4th of July, right? It's kind of weird week. 115 degrees. Wasn't that weird? And then, uh, well, we had, but then we had the, the lifting of all the restrictions, which was a joy as well. Hope, hopefully you're all enjoying that as well. I mean, this is a, so this is a good week for us. We're going to continue here in verse 19. It was kind of interesting to find out where we landed on our particular study today and kind of the things the Lord ministered to me as we were, as I was doing my study. But here we continue at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. And so they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. And so they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and you teach correctly and you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. You may be seated. Here we are, July 4th. As today as a nation, we celebrate the birth of our nation in 1776, 245 years ago, amidst all the backdrop of war and conflict, a group of men gathered together and they joined, signing what we call the Declaration of Independence. And in it, they declared jointly, our freedom from the tyranny and abuses of a, different, of a distant country, declaring this, the right to self-government, the right to establish laws and principles, which in our country were under really the guidance of the Holy Scriptures themselves, the values and the morals of the Scriptures. And so today we honor the birth of our nation. It's a history filled with stories of, of valiance, of wars and victories, as well as assorted scandals that have kind of colored our past, as we even look at our past. But also in my life, about 48 years ago, amidst the backdrop of conflict, of hostile resistance, that I personally gained my own freedom. And I found the liberty I gained was my, my liberty was from an adversary, but my adversary overcame me. I found freedom on the battlefield of my surrender. I found my freedom on the battlefield where I yielded my life to my Savior, the one who won me. And to my joy and amazement, I discovered that the one I had been fighting so hard against for so long had all the time been fighting for me that he actually had been coming for me and conquers me in my defeat, that I find my freedom from the tyranny of sin and death that had so captured my life for so long. And it was there I found the freedom to love. I found the freedom of faith and the freedom that would fight the fears and insecurities of life as I grow in this faith. You see, Jesus that day won the battle of my soul. 
And so today I can gladly say that I declare my dependence upon him. Not my independence from him, but my dependence on him. The one who died for me and loved me. And the one who promises me eternal life. And though I'm still fighting spiritual battles, I still really believe with all my heart that the battle belongs to the Lord. And I'm learning to grow in that every day. So here we are. I've told you two stories this morning, one of a country and one of a soul. One world we might define as the secular world. It might be uh, the other we might define as the spiritual world. One world is defined by things that are, are temporal, the other by things that are eternal. And at times, these two worlds can kind of coexist in peace, and at other times, they're in extreme conflict. Both worlds are very real, and how we respond to one relates to how we respond to the other. And the Bible tells us that as believers that we're dual citizens, that we belong to two kingdoms. But there is one that supersedes the other and governs the other. And one world we call the secular and we call the material. We live as American citizens in a nation that is currently fighting for its very soul. I think all of us can see it going on. It seems at the time that often it looks like we're losing that battle. In this world, we face the pressures of daily life. We kind of face the, the, the pressures of finances and paying bills and fighting sickness and disease and pandemics and vaccinations and the daily stresses and interferences of things like broken washing machines and air conditioners that don't keep up. It depends where you, if you are blessed enough to have one. But we face these daily pressures. In this world, you know, we face the pressures of maintaining relationships with our families, with our children, and sometimes wayward children. Sometimes it's with our friendships and those we work with. In this world, we go to school to prepare us to go to work so that we can look for work, to find jobs, some that we will love, some that we will hate, some we tolerate, so that we can desperately find some time at some place where we can find reprieve from all the repressors of it all. We face the political pressures of one party that is, is, is pitted against the other. We make decisions when we cast our votes, sometimes being forced to vote for the lesser of two evils. And while we live in this world, we acknowledge that at some point, our relationship with this world is going to come to an abrupt end, that it's going to come to its conclusion, and we will leave everything that we have worked for behind. In the other world, the spiritual world, we're learning to grow in our faith, we're learning to grow in the love of God and of Christ. We're learning to know God, the riches of his amazing grace. We're growing in the spiritual world. We're seeing to, the, the freedom from the burdens of the material world to keep us from the lures of all the shallow enticements and entertaining distractions that would capture our soul if they would. In this world, we fight real spiritual battles, seeking victory over sinful habits and awful thoughts and ungodly thoughts. And today we continue to fight spiritual battles against an adversary that we know for sure is definitely fighting against us, not for us. In this world, in the spiritual world, we're learning to pray. We go to worship at church. We gain the wealth of truth that permeates through the scriptures in the spiritual world. You know, we walk in fellowship with other believers that we hope will be as good for us as we hope to be for them. In the spiritual world, we go through seasons of testing, we go through tribulations, we go through distresses, we experience time of victories as well as time as our failures. In the spiritual world, we face the possibilities of rejections, even persecutions, sometimes by the hands of those we love the most. And yet, even in this, we grow in our faith, 
We're growing in our ability to worship and to trust God, even amidst all the great pressures that we face and the disappointments that might come our way. In this spiritual world, we enjoy the richness of our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, our Maker, the richness of our salvation found through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is now present and dwelling within us and gives us the ability to love and to serve. So you have these two worlds and you have these two kingdoms. One we deem as secular, the other we deem as spiritual. And in our folly, we're most often tempted to think of the physical world as being the real world, as being the real world that really kind of where everything is at. Sometimes you say to somebody, well, in the real world, this is what we do. In the real world, I've got to pay bills. In the real world, I've got to do this. So in ignorance, we tend to sometimes compartmentalize our lives, trying to organize the two. We go to church on Sunday to attend you know, our spiritual self, and throughout the week we attend our secular self, we attend the pressures of the material world, and yet, if you look at it, you realize what a faulty set of reasoning that is, this kind of spiritual schizophrenia. We're being of two minds, one that is spiritual, one that is of this world, neither fully satisfied with the other. And yet, there is no denying that as believers, we are really, truly citizens of two different kingdoms and authorities, the authority of God over the, over the authorities of men. And we know that the Christian faith was not, never intended to, should never present us with a life of schizophrenic Christianity, a life that is double-minded, a double-minded madness, but he offers us a single life of singular devotion to Christ that really ought to really govern every sphere of our life. So in this single-minded devotion of faith and loyalty that should carry us from one Sunday to the next Sunday, with a life of growth and maturity in our faith throughout the week, the two kingdoms, but the greater governs the lesser. And this is really the issue that we find in our text here this morning as the Pharisees and the Herodians join together in seeking to entrap Jesus by the question of where his loyalty and his devotion really lies on one kingdom over the other. You know, as we've seen right at this point, we are now within days of what will be the crucifixion. On Sunday, Jesus walked into, or Jesus rode in Jerusalem on the back of the donkey. He accepted the praises of the throngs of people who had come to welcome him with joy as, his, as their promised Messiah. On Monday, we saw Jesus enter the temple and the court of the Gentiles, a place that was purposed by God to be a place of prayer, of communicating the heart of God for those who are lost. However, in recent years, it had become a marketplace where merchants and money exchangers under the authority of the religious leaders, the authorities and shepherd over the Jews, were using it to extort and to exploit the sheep in order to line their own pockets. So when Jesus entered, the holy righteousness of God was unleashed. And it becomes a scene of violence as Jesus himself overturns the tables. He chases out the merchants and with a righteous rebuke, he says, my father's house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And of course, when Jesus said that, it only added to the bitter resentment and hatred of the religious leaders. You see, for over three years, they have followed after him like others. They have watched him. They have scrutinized him. They have criticized him. They have observed him doing supernatural works that were unquestionable. But they never followed him with an honest yearning for the truth, 
But with cynicism and pride, they persisted in their unbelief. And at this point, they have had enough of Jesus. And to be honest, Jesus has had enough of them. Things are now coming to a head. They have long ago reached the conclusion that Jesus must be stopped, that he must be put to death. But they have a huge problem because they know that the vast majority of the people who are out there love Jesus. Many have been healed by him. Many have been touched, their lives forever changed by him. So somehow, some way at this point, they need to put a wedge between Jesus and his followers to which end they try to publicly humiliate him in the eyes of the people. They want to entrap him in a conflict that will force Rome, perhaps, to do their dirty work for them. Last week, we saw that while Jesus was teaching and preaching in the temple courts, that the religious leaders, the chief priests, and the elders, they came together to publicly confront Jesus and ask him by what authority he was doing these things. Jesus, we saw, seeing through their duplicity, knowing they weren't genuinely seeking the truth, he answers their question with a question of his own. And he asked them whether or not they believed that John's baptism was from heaven or was it simply the work of a man? Jesus knew that the religious leaders, that they had hated John the Baptist even before they hated him, and for the same reason. And so he puts this question to them knowing that the people generally believe that John was indeed a prophet sent by God. So the religious leaders now find themselves in a dilemma. They know that they answer that John is a true prophet sent by God, knowing this is what the people believe. Then they know that Jesus would come back and say, well, why don't you believe Jesus who testified of me? On the other hand, if they answer that John was a mere man doing simply the works of a man, not a prophet, they would most likely be stoned because the people believe that John was a prophet. So because religious leaders fear the people more than they fear God, they claim their ignorant agnosticism, claiming they don't know, to which Jesus refuses to answer their question. Now again, if you were not here last week, I want to encourage you to to pick up the flow of the study. But if you remember, this was followed up by Jesus speaking a parable about the vineyard, which was a reference to Israel. And in it, he portrays not only the religious leaders' rejection of the prophets who were sent before him, but also the rejection of himself as the son and heir of the vineyard. The message is clear that in the parable, Jesus not only predicts his own crucifixion, which will occur within days when they will take him out of the city and crucify him, But he also predicts their future, that the time will come when they will be rejected as well, that their vineyard will be taken away from them that bears no fruit. It'll be uprooted and given to a people that would bear fruit. And that was the clear prediction of Jesus of the coming destruction within a generation in AD 70 when the Romans come in and they uproot the people in Jerusalem. They, they lower, they ruin, they bring the city to ruins. They scatter the Jews throughout the world. But the prediction also predicts the gospel of the kingdom of God that would go out to the Gentiles as described in the book of Acts. Jesus is following the course here and he's laying out everything that's going to happen. That they, the religious leaders, these authorities over the Jews, they were the vine growers who killed the servants, the prophets. And they were the ones who was going to kill the heir of the vineyard, the son of the vineyard himself. And they're the ones who would reject the chief cornerstone, the capstone on which all the law and the prophets rested. 
And consequently, they were the ones who were going to be pulverized and crushed to powder by the chief cornerstone that falls upon them. Jesus is declaring that he is the key to it all. That apart from him, you have nothing. That to reject Jesus is to reject not only the law and the prophets, it is to reject God's eternal plan of redemption. Thus we come to our verse this morning here in 19. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. When Jesus spoke this parable, they wanted to kill him right then and there. They understood what Jesus had just said. But again, they have a huge problem. What is it? They fear the people because the people believe that Jesus is sent by God to be their promised hope their Messiah. And again, the big problem of the religious leaders is that they fear the people more than they fear God. And anytime you have a greater fear of man than you do of God, you are in trouble. So what they do in verse 20 is this. They watched him. They sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order they might catch him in some statement so that they would deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. Now notice the intent that they have here, their ambition. Because they fear the backlash of a people who believe in Jesus, they have to be very careful how they deal with him without diminishing themselves in the process. And so they continue to watch him. They continue to scrutinize him. And they sent spies, and I like the wording here, who pretended to be righteous. They come. Why? To catch him and saying something that could be used against him before the secular authorities, the authority of Rome. And again, it's a question of authority. Remember, they had failed in trying to question Jesus' spiritual authority in the eyes of the people. So now they want to question his authority before the secular authorities of Rome. Psalm 37 verse 12 says, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. They question Jesus. And listen to what they say. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. And that you're not partial to any that you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Before we go any farther, I want to talk about who they are. Luke doesn't emphasize this. Matthew and Mark do. They tell us that who these people are, the they here, are Pharisees who come along with the Herodians with their intent to entrap Jesus. Now, I've said this all along. One of the great joys of studying the Gospels is when you become familiar with who all the characters are in the Scriptures. And there you come to the conclusion that Jesus does this amazing job at uniting people who are normally adversaries, people who normally couldn't stand one another, who share this bitter 
despite for each other, but with Jesus, they find commonality in their hatred. We're going to see this next week with the the Pharisees and Sadducees, who are also adversaries. But here you kind of see it's kind of like Roosevelt. It's kind of like Churchill, you know, joining forces with Stalin because they have this common enemy, Hitler, who they got to come against. And so right now, the aim is we got to get Jesus no matter what. Enemies now become friends. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees. They claim to be utterly uncompromising in their devotion to the law of God and the promises of God to Israel at any cost. And thus they would normally have despised any pagan nation ruler like Rome and a pagan emperor who claims to be divine and has this authority over them. The Pharisees despised Herod the Great. In fact, they saw him as as an authority, a pagan authority, and a puppet king placed by Rome. They despised the fact that Herod the king was not even a full-blooded Jew but he was of Idumean, Edomite blood, a people who had been bitter enemies of Israel throughout the years. On the other hand, here's the Herodians. These are the secularists. They are far more interested in in political expediency simply for the sake of peace. They have no spiritual interest in the laws of God, but rather a political interest in retaining the peace and the place of the land regardless of what it cost. The Herodians, they support the rule of Herod the Great and his sons who rule after him as a means of self-preservation. Normally, they would have seen the Pharisees as what we would call today the far-right extremists threatened by the peace, by their extreme religious views. They were, the very, they were okay with the compromises with Rome as long as you don't upset the apple cart. Just keep the peace, the path of least resistance. We'll take whatever it takes. It's kind of interesting that today in Israel and even in our country, you see these warring factions. Some were for religious reasons, other for political reasons. But they all do it for what the sake they think is of peace, for the sake of the religion or the sake of the politics or whatever it might be. So one might wonder, what's the Herodians' beef with Jesus? Why in the world would they be so uptight with him? They're just simply kind of pacifists in some way. Well, like the Pharisees, they fear his popularity. They fear the fact that the people are coming after him. They fear that he might trigger some kind of national rebellion of the people toward Rome, which would upset their peace. So here in our study, we see both the Pharisees and the Herodians, the secularists, they come and they join forces in order to trap Jesus, their common enemy. Now, this time, they use the issue of taxes as their bait. And they come to Jesus, they pretend to be righteous, seekers of truth, and first they butter him up. Flattery. Teacher. We know. We know that you speak the truth correctly. You're a good teacher. And, and we know that you're not partial to any and that you're a just man. You're a good man. You're, you're really good. And that you teach the way of God and truth. And you can almost sense here the syrupy oozing and schmoozing that's going on between them. They're trying to massage his ego, trying to get him set up here and listen to Jesus. And really the things they're saying about Jesus is true. He is really teaching the ways of God, and indeed, he is without prejudice. He's not influenced by the status of someone, by their age or whatever. 
So they're speaking truth, but Jesus knows they don't believe a word of what they're saying. Like most politicians we might see today, he knew they're hypocrites and play actors. That they simply kind of butter him up and with a show on the outside, while on the inside they got a, a dagger behind their back they're ready to stab him with. Proverbs 26, 28, a lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. But here's the question they asked Jesus. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Just like it is for us today, the issue of taxes has always been a vulnerable topic. Issue of taxes. Two things they say are certain life, death and taxes. And they say that that taxes make death a little bit more pleasant, you know. <laughs> One lady calls the IRS and asks whether or not birth control pills are, are deductible. She says, only if they don't work. Only if they don't work. <laughs> the Pharisees, you see, they don't mind the idea of paying taxes as long as they get a cut of it. As long as there's something for them. But nothing incensed them and angered them more than paying taxes to the Romans to, for their occupation in the land they held, according to the promises of God. At that time, the Romans leveled, levied different taxes against the people. They had to pay a land tax. They had a produce tax of 10% of their grain, 5% of their fruit and their wine. They had to pay a custom tax at the ports and city gates of 2 to 5% of their valued goods. You know, they had to pay a, a poll tax, which is an annual head tax on the population. Anyone between 14 and 65 had to pay the amount of one denarius equal to one day's wage. That's why at that time the census was so important for the Romans to make sure they always collected the proper revenues. Nothing changes in time. But every tax paid by the Jews to the Romans was one more reminder that they were not free that they are still under the yoke of a pagan government under a pagan ruler who himself claims to be God. On top of it, the Roman currency, such as the denarius, has this image of Caesar stamped on it, which only infuriates them all the more. You see, the law of God says you shall not worship any graven image. And to devout Jews, they took it very seriously. Over the years, there had been rebellions and revolts against Rome formed over the very issue of taxes. It's kind of interesting because you realize even the, the founding of our country had much to do with the issue of taxes. So while the Herodians are not lovers of taxes, they see them as a necessary evil in order to keep things kind of flowing along in peace. But because they're secularists, they have no problem with the images of currency on the money. So the Pharisees, we see, they oppose the tax on religious grounds. The Herodians, they support the tax on political grounds. And here they come to set the trap on Jesus. So Jesus tells us, tell us, you're such a wonderful man. You're so good. You're so awesome. We know that you only speak things that God tells you. We just want to know, is it right to pay this tax or is it not? Uh, Jesus knows if he says yes, that he supports the tax, he might gain the favor of Rome, but it'll put him at odds with most of his people. He also knows, on the other hand, if he publicly says he's opposed to the tax and says it's unjust and ungodly, and that it shouldn't be paid, it'll put him in opposition with the Roman authorities. 
which will cause the Roman authorities to lay charges of sedition and insurrection against him. So they think they've placed Jesus in kind of this no-win situation. And it would appear that no matter what position Jesus takes, he's kind of been boxed in, that, that he's going to pit one group against another group. But verse 23, and I love this, but he detected their trickery and he said to them, Jesus perceives their malice, their ill intent. He sees through their flattery. And he always does. Did you guys know that? He always sees through it. And there's no way that you can manipulate or entrap Jesus by your maneuvers, no matter what you think, and think somehow you're going to win. I've said this so many times. I hope you listen. It was a very good day in my life when I finally realized I cannot fool Jesus. That there's no way on earth that I can manipulate him because as a youth, I was the master manipulator. And when I came to Jesus, I met my match. And I learned some of it the very hardest way. But I cannot fool and manipulate Jesus. That he sees through all of it. And he knows the absolute truth about every one of us. And sometimes that's very disconcerting, isn't it? You go, oh man, I don't like knowing that he knows. But I'll tell you something, there's other times in my life where I say, I'm so glad that he knows. Because I just need to know that he knows what's going on with my life. But Jesus saw through it all. And in this, we get this great illustration of something that Jesus would once say to his disciples in Matthew 10, 16. When he tells them, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. And here Jesus stands in the midst of these ravenous wolves. He knows they're out to devour him and he exercises wisdom and he remains as harmless as a dove. And he says to them, show me a denarius. And he asked them, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they answered him, Caesar's. Here it he says, give me a coin. Show me the coin. Tell me, whose inscription is on there? This one is George Washington. But theirs was Caesar. And Jesus simply looks at him. He tells him, it says, you know what? Listen, I'll tell you what you do. Here, you give this to George. You give to God what belongs to God. And he takes the wind right out of their sails. You know, when you think about it, it's really an amazing response because he says, give to God what belongs to God. Don't let that pass you by. What does that mean? Well, Psalms 24, 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. The world and all those who dwell in it. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Think about this. You look at the coin, you see whose image is on it. And you look in the mirror and whose image do you bear? You bear the image of your creator, the only creature of all creation, made in the image of God, because we belong to him. First and foremost, we belong to him. 
and our greater loyalty is always to him as one loyalty of one over the other. And here we get this picture of Jesus and his view of dual citizenship and the tensions that can occur in our life when one authority is in contest with the authority of the lesser. You see, while the Jews are living in the Roman world, they had to face the reality of their subjection to the authority of Rome. But they had to do it even as a responsibility to God. They had to do both. But they knew their first loyalty was to God. And while we are here on this earth, we know that we are under the rule of an ever-increasing pagan government. I see it in our country. If you don't hold to that view, I understand, but I just see that pagan thoughts taking over. We're under a greater rule and authority, but we know this, that God rules over all and that his authority is higher. And the Bible makes it clear that it is God who appoints governments and its rulers. Why? For the sake of civilization, for survival, for law and order, and how rulers exercise their authority is a responsibility that they will all ultimately be judged by a righteous God for how they use their authority. Romans 13, 1 says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. But notice even in the command that is the greater authority that governs the lesser authority. Peter writes something very similar during a time of great unrest and persecution. Under Nero himself, Peter writes in, in 1 Peter 2, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing it you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondservants of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. For the Lord's sake, he says, under the rule of God, he says, I want you to honor those in authority over you as an honor to me, even to pagans in the face of knowing that they will all face and be judged by the way they govern. I think of what Paul writes to Romans in Romans 12, 17. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What am I getting at? Today, July 4th, I'm grateful to be an American. And I appreciate the flag of the United States. I love what it stands for. I'm thankful for our heritage, even with all of its flaws. I don't like paying taxes, but I pay them. I appreciate the right to vote, though in Oregon, hardly ever goes my way. I appreciate the police who are out there maintaining, supposed to be maintaining the law and order. I think it's vitally important to a civilization. I hate it when I see anarchy and chaos kind of ruling the streets, and I think the defund the police movement is the stupidest thing in the world. I think it's nuts. I even appreciate speed limits and stop signs. Not that I enjoy stopping or being limited in speed, and sometimes I exceed the speed. 
But I hate to think of the chaos there would be if there was no speed limits and if there was no stop signs. I realize the importance of having laws and of having order, and I'm thankful for the military. I'm not pro-war, I just like the idea of knowing we can protect ourselves, but like most of you, I find myself so heartbroken for our country. I'm grieving for our nation. It hurts to see the direction that is going, and the lawlessness, and the parading of immorality. I hate to see the injustice, and by that I mean the biblical kind of injustice that the Bible speaks about, that despises bribery and unjust scales, the kind where abuses of power exploiting those who are vulnerable. I detest what we call the American gospel that is far more concerned about American comfort and American dream and the quest for wealth and pleasure than it has to do with being a disciple, a true follower of Christ who will give up everything. And so I hear Jesus here saying, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Yeah, I, I love my country. I thank God I still have the freedom to stand up here and preach like this, and who knows how long we're going to have it. I thank God for it, but one thing I keep in mind, and this is this, and I want you to keep in mind, is that I am first and foremost a Christian who happens to be an American. I'm first and foremost a Christian who is devoted to Christ before I'm devoted to being an American. My loyalty to Christ comes before my loyalties to any political party. And my loyalties to Christ come before my loyalty to anything. Because he is the authority of my life. And it's under his authority that I even see the need to obey the other authorities. Because he is the authority. And I am a dual citizen and we are dual citizens, but our greater loyalty governs the lesser. So if there should ever be a conflict between the two, between my loyalty here or my loyalty there, I pray that I'd always choose to fear God over than the fear of man. That I would rather offend my government than I would offend my God. And this is the reason why communists and oppressive governments are so threatened by Christianity. Because they know where the greater loyalty always lies. That Jesus the law, or that God will always come first. You know, being a, an American citizen paying taxes does not put us at enmity with God at all. I don't like seeing where taxes go for and what they pay for. It's frustrating. But only when there's a choice between obedience to one over the other that I would say, I choose God to obey you rather than man. You know, the apostles in Acts chapter 4, the Sanhedrin, the same group of people who have come after Jesus in our scene here, they come after Peter and John because they want to shut them up. And they forbid them to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John, they answer, say, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And my prayer for all of us is that we will not stop speaking 
about what we have seen and we have heard and the work that Jesus has done in our lives. One day, we know this for sure, we don't know how long, but the kingdom of this earth, this world, is going to come to its end. Either we'll go before it or it's going to happen, but the kingdom of heaven endures forever. It never ends. And so, yeah, you give to Uncle Sam what is his, and you give to God what is his, and when a choice is made, has to be made between one or the other, what you owe to God is far greater than what you owe to Uncle Sam. God first, before anything and everything. And you don't have to be belligerent about it. You don't have to be rude. But you live in a way that honors God at all times. At all times. Look at verse 26. And they were unable to capture to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Curses. Foiled again. <laughs> but only for a short time. Because next week when we come back, they'll be at it again. As they will with you. Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you, Lord, for the liberty that you have set us free from the burden of sin and of death. I thank you, God, for the eternal promises that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, I thank you for the country that we live in. But Lord, I'm burdened for it. I know we all are. And we pray for our nation today. We pray, God, that in the midst of all the nuttiness and the craziness that's going on, we ask, Lord, that you would send a revival. That, Lord, that you would send your spirit, Lord, just to do an awakening in the lives of so many, Lord, at this hour and this time. And my heart, Lord, just prays that as we've come through this last year and four years, Lord, for some of us, it has been the richest time spiritually, God, as you've ministered to us. I pray, Lord, that we don't forsake the lessons, God, that we've learned. And that, Lord, that we would seek you first and foremost above all other things. Lord, that we would seek your mind, that we would seek your heart, and that love, Lord, would draw us to those who are lost, and that love, Lord, would be the influence of our lives by which we love you and we seek to love others, even speaking the truth and love, knowing, God, that at times, Lord, we come against opposition and things, Lord, that leave us in turmoil, but Jesus, we pray, Father, today, as your people, Lord, that we would come to a single-minded devotion to honor you before all and others. And even while we live in this world, God, 
in this government, that Father, you would be the one that we give our loyalty and our obedience. We love you, Lord. Thank you.